Now, last week, we embarked on a mini-series within the book of Romans, Romans chapter 9, Romans chapter 10, Romans chapter 11, having to do with the nation of Israel. And so I've entitled this today, God's Plan for the Jewish People, Part 2. Let me ask you a question this morning as we begin. How do you view the Jews? How do you view the nation of Israel? How do you view the Jewish people? I guess that's three questions, isn't it? Do you see them as God does, which, by the way, is according to the Bible? That's the way God sees them. Romans chapter 9 through 11 are, in a sense, a parenthesis in the book of Romans. Romans chapter 9 deals with Israel past. In other words, what God originally planned for them. Romans chapter 10 deals with Israel present. Yes, from the days of the beginning of the church in Acts chapter 2, even to today. This is the case, and that's where it's at. But I believe we are very close prophetically and historically to Romans chapter 11, which is Israel future. Now, we are going to continue in Romans 9. Last week, I kind of laid a foundation in Romans 9, and as I was sharing with somebody before this service today, Romans 9 is an interesting chapter because you can't really do Romans 9 unless you cover the whole chapter in one service. Now, don't let that scare you, okay? We already made some progress last week in that, and and we will go through, but you have to understand the flow. In Romans chapter 9, the issue of election comes up. No, not to voting for a candidate for president. The issue of election, in other words, God choosing, God choosing certain people groups or, or, and so forth for a particular purpose. A lot of people have a misunderstanding of the issue of election today. People have hijacked the idea of election and make it an issue of God looks at humanity and he chooses certain one. Everybody's condemned, but he chooses certain ones to go to heaven out of humanity. All right. And it's just a matter of him deciding who's going to go to heaven and the rest too bad. God chooses some to heaven and the rest too bad. Now that's what's called Calvinism today, and that is not what the Bible teaches. As we are going to understand what election is all about today, that is really what the focus is. Romans 9, election, does not have to do so much with personal salvation, but the nation through whom the Lord has chosen to work, namely the nation of Israel. That is what Romans chapter 9 is about. For God to choose, now listen carefully today as we set this foundation. For God to choose to work through Israel as a nation does not mean that he also chooses people to go to heaven and others to go to hell. The two are not the same. One doesn't necessarily follow the other. And this is one of the fatal errors of a teaching that is very prevalent today and is gaining steam, false teaching, called Calvinism, originating with John Calvin himself, okay? Now listen carefully. God has a right to choose to do things his way and to choose certain people and nations for certain tasks. God has a right to do that. He also has the foreknowledge of knowing what will happen in the future and acting accordingly to bring about his ultimate plan. God is sovereign, okay? That means simply that God is the boss of the universe. He has a right to say how things are, how things are going to be. However, remember, God never violates his character. 
He never violates his character. This is so important to understand. Now let's put to bed once and for all this idea, false idea that God chooses some to heaven and others he chooses to hell. He does not just arbitrarily, according to his will, decide who goes to heaven and who goes to hell. Now he has ordained that the way to heaven is through faith alone in Jesus Christ alone. But here's the difference. That is true and a real offer to all mankind. 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 3, it says this, For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who will have, look at what it says, all men to be saved and come into the knowledge of the truth. Now that could not be clearer than what it says. The word all means all, 100% of all that is. It is completely It means everybody, okay? And that's what the word all means. And that's a very clear statement. Now in scripture, you always interpret unclear passages by clear ones. I don't think anything could really get much more clear than 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. But along with that, 1 John chapter 2, in verse verse 2, it says this, and he, the Lord Jesus Christ, is the propitiation, the satisfactory payment for sin. That's what a propitiation is. And he is the propitiation for our sins. John is writing to believers in 1 John. He's a propitiation for our sins, but look what he says. And not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Now, Why would Jesus be the satisfactory payment for the sins of the whole world if the whole world could not be saved? It doesn't make any sense. Hebrews says he tasted death for every man. Now why would Jesus taste death for every man if not every man could be saved? That's a waste, okay? No, he did it for everyone because everyone could be saved. Now, we spent more time on that last week, but let's continue. Let's look at several points today. The first one is this, again, Israel passed. The main issue in chapters 9 through 11 is not personal salvation. It is the history of Israel and God's dealing with her. We see in, in chapter 9, God's plan for the Jewish people, and also we see in chapter 9, their failure to submit to the plan of God. Now listen very carefully to this. If Calvinism was true, God's plan for the Jewish people, he would have given it and they would have embraced it. Why? Well, because Calvinists do not believe that man actually has what we would call a free will, that God made him as a free moral agent. Now I know people say, well, he's, he's in bondage, so therefore it's not free. I, I understand all that, okay? But we are talking about reality here. We're talking about reality. The very fact that God created man with the ability and the freedom to make choices, whether those are good choices or bad, he created us to where we can make choices. That completely does away with this idea that you are, you are locked in and you can't be saved. No, you can be saved. But again, we're dealing with Israel And Israel, God had a plan for Israel, and they did not accept the plan God had for them. And so that's why their history, and listen, I love the Jewish people, and everybody knows we are a pro-Israel church here. Pro-Israel, 
Okay? Doesn't mean they're perfect people. What it means is God said, I am going to bless them. I'm going to work through them. And folks, I'm here to tell you, he's not through with them yet. And he's going to continue working in Israel. And we see it prophetically. They're back in the land. They've been there since 1948. And they're lining up and getting ready for the last days, as we have already seen. We'll talk more about that as we go through this series. But nevertheless, God had a plan for them, and we're going to see it in the text of Scripture today. They rejected the plan God had for them, and therefore they have suffered the consequences of that. And by the way, there's more suffering up ahead for them. Romans 9.1, I say the truth in Christ. Now Paul is a saved Jew. I say the truth in Christ. I lie not, my conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Ghost that I have great heaviness and continual sorrow in my heart for I could wish that myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Paul had such a burden for his fellow Jews. He says, I know it's not possible. We know that he's, he understands it's not possible for Romans 8. But he says, if they would all be saved, I would be willing to be accursed. I don't understand that. Okay? I'm sorry. I want you to go to heaven, but not more than I want to go. Okay? I'm glad I'm saved. I'm glad I have salvation. And I want you to have it too. That's why we have this ministry. But nevertheless, it'd be hard for me to imagine being lost so all of you could be saved and me end up in hell. Uh, I know that sounds terrible, but you feel the same way if you're honest, okay? He says, for I could wish that myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom pertain the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God, and the promises, whose are the fathers, and of whom... As concerning the flesh, Christ, the Messiah, came, who is over all, God bless forever, amen. God had a plan for the Jews. God was faithful to his plan for the Jews, but they did not embrace it. Verse 9, for this is the word of promise, at this time will I come, and Sarah shall have a son. And not only this, but when Rebekah also had conceived by one, even by our father Isaac, For the children being not yet born, neither having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him that calleth, it was said unto her, the elder shall serve the younger. It is amazing to me that people read verse 12 and they look at that and they say that, see that God chooses some people to heaven and others to hell. Wait a minute. What translation are you using? The language says, the elder shall serve the younger. So let's look at that, this subpoint: The elder shall serve the younger. This is speaking of the nations that would come out of Jacob and Esau. In other words, God would work through Jacob, which is Israel. The elder shall serve the younger, okay? The younger being Jacob, He would be the one. He would be the focus. Dr. Mark G. Cameron. Well, let's stop here for just a second. This is a quote from Genesis 25, verse 23. It says, and the Lord said unto her, two nations. You notice it? What's it say? Two what? Two nations. That's nothing to do with getting to heaven. Two nations are in thy womb, and two manner of people shall be separated from thy bowels, and the one people shall be stronger Then the other people and the elder shall serve the younger. 
The younger, the one who was born second, was Jacob, and yet it says Esau will serve Jacob. The Edomites would not be the focus, it would be the Jewish people. Dr. Mark G. Cameron says this, and I quote, at once we point out that election or choosing has to do with service. The elder shall serve the younger. It does not say the younger shall be saved and the elder shall be lost. No, but simply the elder shall serve the younger. Thus, choosing or election has to do with service. Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated wasn't said of these two men before they were born. And by the way, that's a quote as we're going to see from Malachi 1. But hundreds of years after they died. So the idea that God hates some people and loves other people, that's not what it was talking about. As we're going to see in Malachi 1, it's talking about the nations. It's not talking about the individuals. As a matter of fact, is it not true that God promised blessing to Esau? You read Genesis, it's very clear. God did not hate Esau. Romans 9, 13, as it is written, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. See, this was a choice of service and national destiny. And God has a right to do this. God chose to work through the nation of Israel. Has nothing to do with God choosing some to heaven and some to hell. This is a selection of a nation to work through. There is no reference in Malachi to the eternal salvation of either Jacob or Esau, nor their descendants. Neither is eternal salvation the issue, as we're going to come in just a few minutes, to the issue of Pharaoh in Romans chapter 9. I want you to hold your place here and look with me to Malachi chapter 1. Malachi 1.1, the burden of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi, okay? The burden of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. I have loved you. Who is he writing to? Israel. I have loved you, saith the Lord. Yet ye say, wherein hast thou loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, saith the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob. And I hated Esau and laid his mountains and his heritage waste for the dragons of the wilderness. So we see secondly here that Jacob, it says, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. Malachi 1-2, which is quoted in Romans 9 verse 13, was written 1,500 years after the prophecy was given. This has to do with the descendants of nations, not individuals. The descendants of nations. In the context, the Lord is pleading for Israel to serve him because he had chosen them for special privileges and special blessings. And God has a right to do that. But it has nothing to do with the eternal destiny of the individual. It has to do with the uh, desire of God on a certain nation. That's all it is. But they, the nation of Israel, the Jewish people, they were in rebellion. And so God is pleading with them, look, I've set you apart for many blessings. I've chosen to work through you. As we've already seen in in chapter nine, uh, Israel had all these privileges that God gave them as a nation. Had nothing to do with the individual going to heaven or hell. That's not the point of Romans nine. In other words, it refers to the descendants of Jacob, Israel, and the descendants of Esau or the Edomites. 
The uh, New Schofield Reference Bible has a very good statement. It says this, and I quote, the statement that God loved Jacob but hated Esau must be taken as a relative rather than an absolute. Special blessings were promised to Esau and his descendants, Genesis 27, 38 through 40. However, the spiritual insight of Jacob was far greater, and Jacob was the one through whom the promised seed was to come. The comparison of the good things done for Jacob and those done for Esau is like the difference between loving and hating. This is a a relative issue referred to here. Now let's go back to Romans chapter 9. It says in verse 14, what shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? Is there unrighteousness with God? Is God unrighteous to do things the way he has decided to do? Well, God forbid. For he saith to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then it is not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth, but of God that showeth mercy. All right? Now you might say, well, see, God is prejudiced. No, let me, again, If you're going to bring it down to the individual level, we'll deal with that in just a second. But he's talking about working through a nation. He chose a nation to work through, which was Israel. All right? What is wrong with that? There's nothing wrong with that. That is what God ordained. And it's not a matter of being prejudiced towards individuals. Because if you're going to break that down to the idea of individuality... Let me say this, friends, which leads us to our second major point today. God is merciful, but his mercy extends to all. God is merciful, but his mercy extends to all. This is a principle in the word of God, but it is also within the context of the word of God. In other words, the Lord will be merciful to any person who lines themselves up with God's will. I'd say, where do you see that? Well, I'm glad you asked. If you want to see it, you can turn there, but we'll also project the verse. Psalm 86, verse 5, it says this. It says, For thou, Lord, art good and ready to forgive and plenteous in mercy. Look at the next phrase. Unto all them that call upon thee. God will be merciful to any individual. Now, remember the context of Romans 9 is the nation of Israel. But when you're dealing with individuals, God will be merciful to all. You don't have this, I won't show you this verse, it just came to my mind. Righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. There's choice in there. Our nation, the United States of America, in times past has been so abundantly blessed. Why? Because we have honored the principles of God's word. But listen, we're not Israel. Israel is Israel. But we've honored God's word to the level, the extent that we did. God has blessed us. And you know what, folks? That's not a guarantee for the future. Righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach unto any people. The perversion and the twisted lifestyles and and all the junk that we have in America today, abortion and so on and so forth, could very well come a day when God says, that's it, I've had it with you. And he pronounces judgment on this country when we enter into that. Romans chapter 11 In verse 32, it says, For God hath concluded them all in unbelief that he might have mercy upon all, both Jew and Gentile, all 
in unbelief. The Jews have been in unbelief, the Gentiles have been in unbelief, and God says, I'm willing to have mercy on everybody. Now that doesn't sound to me like God chooses some to heaven and some to hell. Sounds to me like that fits right in with John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Now this third point, major point I want to make is very, very important. Here you go. God in his sovereignty gave man a free will. I know I've alluded to that a little bit already, but it needs to be focused on. God in his sovereignty gave man a free will. God's will, this one, people, people have a hard time with this who are Calvinists, but if you look at scripture, it has to be this way. God's will has allowed for man's will. God's will has allowed for man's will. I know I've shared this before, but years ago, we had just started our church months before that and had somebody call me on a Sunday night and, and uh, he says, hey, you know, I, I found out about your church. I heard some things about it and wanted to ask you a few questions. I'm thinking of coming out. And, and uh, so we got talking and, and sounded like he was saved and he was excited. And I'm getting excited because I'm thinking, wow, this is a potential new, new person, new family. This is going to be great and all that. And then, and then at one point he says this, let me ask you this. What do you believe about the sovereignty of God? And I thought, hmm. Now, I was going to tell him, but I kind of had an idea where he was coming from with a question like that. I was wondering, is he a Calvinist? Well, sure enough, we locked horns and off we went on that. And I told him, God and his sovereignty allowed man to have a free will. And he says, and I said, and God foreknows what man will do and God works Part of what God takes into account and what he does is, is knowing what man is going to do. It's foreknowledge. Remember, according to 1 Peter 1, 2, folks, election is according to foreknowledge. It's not foreknowledge is according to election. Election is according to foreknowledge. That is the clear statement of Scripture. And so I said, God foreknows and God works. He takes that into account and, and, he, and he works within it. And he says, well, then you've got a smaller God than I have. And I said, what? He said, you've got a smaller God than I have. And I said, why do you say that? He says, because you're saying that God can't act until man does what he does. I said, no, 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 no. My God's bigger than your God. Because... God allows man to make his choices, and even with that, God still fulfills his plan. That's a bigger God than a Calvinist God. And by the way, my God is the real God. God's will has allowed for man's will. God didn't have to make man this way. That's his sovereignty. He didn't have to make man. He didn't have to create man with a free will, but he did. That's sovereignty. But he did create us with a free will. You might say, well, I don't, I don't know if I believe that man has a freedom to choose. Well, sure you do. A lot of you are going to go out to eat after church today. You're going to go out to eat and you're going to go into a place, whether it's fast food or your favorite sandwich shop or sit-down restaurant, and they have this thing. It's called a menu. And on the menu, you choose things. And yes, you can even choose and then change your mind. How's that for an exercise of the will? Now, if you have that ability, then why do you not have the ability to make choices about the spiritual issues in your life? 
Well, God gave Israel that choice, as we are going to see. And the history of Israel is very clear. Folks, listen, if they did not have a choice, then God is the author of sin. And God is not the author of sin. The sin in the world and the direction the world has taken and all the misery and suffering and death and killing and evil in the world today, it's not God's will. God will work and he will be glorified in spite of the fact that God allowed man to make choices. That is the God of the Bible. Ultimately, yes, he is the victor. God didn't have to make man this way, but he did. We see this through the choices man has made down throughout history. Adam and Eve sinned. Did they have a choice? They had a choice, but they sinned. Israel rejected Jesus as their Messiah, which is what we're covering in Romans 9. Did they have a choice? They had a choice. Esau traded his birthright, did he not? Did he have a choice? He had a choice. Pharaoh hated the children of Israel and would not let them go. Did he have a choice? People say, oh no, he didn't have a choice. Yes, he did have a choice. Why? Because God creates man and man can make choices. But God knew what Pharaoh would do and therefore used him in the way he did. No violation, it's an issue of harmony. Did God know beforehand all of these people would be the way they were? Yes, he knew beforehand they would be that way. And he allowed it. He allowed it. Now, folks, this answers a lot of questions, by the way, not just about the nation of Israel, but a lot of questions about life in general. Because you know they'll see uh, people today, it's so common, and those of you who, who get on an apologetic conversation with somebody, and they'll say, I can't believe in a God who sends people to hell. I can't believe in a God who's allowed children to be violated. I can't believe in a God who will allow the Holocaust and all these kind of things. And, and they, what they're doing is they're blaming God. It's one thing for God to allow things. It's another thing to blame him for things. None of those evil, wicked choices are God's choice. They're man's choice. Blame ourselves. Don't blame God. Okay, that's where this thing gets all haywire. Verses 14 through 16. The Lord did not have to show mercy to anyone, but he will accomplish his plan for the ages by showing grace to mankind. Israel is still in existence today because the Lord did not wipe them out during the days of Moses and after. Did he at times want to? Yes, he wanted to. I says, well, Moses wanted him snuffed out. Yeah, at times he did. God wanted him snuffed out. Yes, at times he did. Why? It wasn't because they were glorifying him. It's because they were rebelling against him. Was that rebellion the will of God? No, it wasn't the will of God. God's will is always submission to his character and his ways. Two very important points need to be made here, okay? Very simply, First is this, the fact that they did not cooperate with God, it points to free will. Now this is kind of summarizing where we've been so far. The fact that they did not cooperate with God points to free will. But secondly, the fact that the Lord will accomplish his plan points to his sovereignty. There's no contradiction between the two. That's what we need to understand. 
God is sovereign, and as it says in our statement of faith, and in his sovereignty gave man a free will to accept or reject Christ. Now let's go back to our text, Romans 9, verse 17. For the scripture saith unto Pharaoh, even for this same purpose have I raised thee up, that I might show my power in thee, and that my name might be declared throughout all the earth. Therefore hath he mercy on whom he will have mercy, and whom he will he hardeneth. Thou wilt say then unto me, why doth he yet find fault? For who hath resisted his will? (laughs) Who has resisted his will? It's the history of mankind. Anyway, getting off track. Nay, but O man, who art thou that repliest against God? Shall the thing formed say to him that formed it, why hast thou made me thus? Hath not the power potter over the clay of the same lump to make one vessel unto honor and another unto dishonor? Okay, verses 17 through 21. So what about this? Boy, it sounds like, you know, if you just initially read it, you know, Pharaoh, boy, God just figured, okay, you know what? I'm gonna let him be conceived so I can whip him and I can drown him and I can make his life miserable. But the record doesn't say that. If you read Exodus, it's a different story, isn't it? You see, Pharaoh already, here's the truth of it. Pharaoh already had a wicked attitude towards the children of Israel, and we see that in the early chapters of Exodus. He did not want to let them go, for he wanted them as slaves for his own glory and his own majesty. The Lord knew, now listen carefully, the Lord knew in eternity past foreknowledge The Lord knew in eternity past that Pharaoh would be the way he was and therefore he used him to show the world the power of the Lord God Jehovah. He knew he would be the way he was. It had nothing to do with God making it impossible for Pharaoh to be saved because that's not the issue. That false idea is nowhere in the context nor anywhere in Scripture. You might say, but wait a minute. The Bible says that that the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. Yes, it does. And you know what else it says? Pharaoh hardened his heart. You might say, well, which is true? I'm glad you're sitting down. Both. (laughs) Now, here you go. The Lord's will and plan for Israel was the factor that hardened Pharaoh's heart. Now, I want you to think about that. See, Pharaoh chose to not let them go. It's very clear, Exodus 8, 15, Exodus 9, 12. They almost read identical, but it says the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. The other one says Pharaoh hardened his heart, which is true. Both are true. You know, there's a cliche, and it's a very true cliche, and it goes this way. The same sun that melts the wax hardens the clay. The same sun that melts the wax hardens the clay the clay. The same God who melts people to where they accept his way and submit to his way, the same God that does that in other people, the rebellion of their heart rebels towards God and they become more and more and more hardened. Is it God's will that they become hardened? No. But God has created us with the ability to make choices. This leads us to our fourth point. Because of the rejection of Christ by the Jews, the Lord used that rejection to manifest his plan for the church. 
And we'll see this more clearly in Romans chapter 11. Because of the rejection of Christ by the Jews, the Lord used that rejection to manifest his plan of the church, verses 22 through 24. And that means our salvation as Gentiles, okay? But the Lord is not through with the Jews, as we'll see in chapter 11. Now look with me to Romans 9, verse 22. It says this, For what if God, willing to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath fitted to destruction? And that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy, which he had afore prepared unto glory. Even us, whom he hath called, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. And so God has worked, and yes, Israel rebelled, okay? And God dealt with the nation of Israel and is dealing with the nation of Israel and will deal with the nation of Israel. But I'm giving you kind of a preview here. When we get to chapter 11, you're going to find out. Yeah, you know what God did? He turned to the Gentiles and opened up the gospel with this new thing called the church made up of Jew and Gentile, which by the way, shows that Jews still can be saved. But he's working through not so much Israel directly, but the church today. And you know what the Bible tells us is going on with the nation of Israel? Through the church, God is provoking the nation of Israel to jealousy. And that will bring them back. Interesting thought. That's what chapter 11 is all about. Now let's go back here, verse 25. As he saith in Osi or Hosea, I will call them my people, which were not my people, and her beloved, which was not beloved. And it shall come to pass that in the place where it was said unto them, ye are not my people, there shall they be called the children of the living God. Now these verses were originally addressed to the 10 tribes. But here in Romans, they are applied to the Gentile believers of this present age as well. Verse 27, Esaias or Isaiah also crieth concerning Israel, though the number of the children of Israel be as the sand of the sea, a remnant shall be saved. Now why won't they all be saved? Because they don't want to be. It isn't that God doesn't want them to be. It's that they don't want to be. For he will finish the work and cut it short in righteousness because a short work will the Lord make upon the earth. And as Isaiah said before, except the Lord of Sabaoth had left us a seed, we had been as Sodom and been made like unto Gomorrah, or Sodom and Gomorrah, okay? So God promised that he would have a preserved seed, the nation would go on, and we see that today, okay? For some 2,000 years, the nation of Israel has been dispersed and has been basically under judgment, under judgment, and having to deal with that rejection of the Messiah when he was first offered to them when Jesus came. And they've been dealing with that ever since, okay? And have been the, the, a byword and the off-scouring, uh, uh, or that's, I know that's to the church, but they've been seen that way as, as something that has been rejected and all. But folks, God loves the Jewish people. He hasn't given up on them because he still has a future plan for them. And it's happening. Now, this issue, again, I want to touch base one more time on this issue of free will. Hold your place and look with me to Luke chapter 13. Because I want you to understand this again. It has to be 
this way. God in sovereignty gave man a free will. Now there are parallel passages to this passage in Luke 13, 34 in Matthew, all right, and so forth. But I I just want you to understand, we'll just read it out of Luke. Here's Jesus lamenting as he looks at the city of Jerusalem. And he says this in Luke 13, 34. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. He's talking about the Jewish people. Which killest the prophets and stonest them that are sent unto thee. How often would I have gathered thy children together as a hen doth gather her brood under her wings. And look at the next phrase. And ye would not. Do any of us dare to look at the first part of Luke 13, 34 and say it wasn't God's will for them to accept Christ? He made it very clear it was. But the problem wasn't him. The problem was them. They rejected him. His will was for them to come to him. And yet they rejected him. That's free will. That's free will. Also, look with me to Acts chapter 7. Here's Stephen. Stephen had a very limited preaching career. Sort of like a singing group that has one hit, you know. Well, tonight we're going to be singing a medley of our hit tune. (laughs) Stephen only got in one sermon in his whole life. Boy, was it powerful, though, and how God used it. And by the way, even used it in the life of a Pharisee named Saul of Tarsus. And here he is preaching away, and boy, I'll tell you what, he just let it go, and he was preaching to the unbelieving Jews. Remember now, Jesus has already died and come back from the dead and has gone to heaven. And it says in Acts 7.51, Stephen says to them, ye stiff-necked, that means stubborn, by the way, it's the idea, stubborn. Is is stubbornness a matter of the will? Yes, it's a matter of the will. Ye stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and years, ears, ye do always resist the Holy Ghost as your fathers did, so do ye. As you're just like your parents were, just like your forefathers were. The Spirit was drawing you, the Spirit was calling you, the Spirit wanted you to cooperate with His plan, and you didn't want to do it. And that's where Israel finds itself today, still. They didn't want it. Let's go back to Romans 9. It says, what shall we say then? That the Gentiles, which followed not after righteousness, have attained to righteousness, even the righteousness which is of faith, not the works of the law. See, the Jews were trusting in the works of the law, not faith in Christ for salvation. But Israel, which followed after the law of righteousness hath not attained to the law of righteousness. Wherefore? Because they sought it not by faith, but as it were by the works of the law. And and faith isn't just faith. It's faith in Christ is the issue, folks. Faith in Jesus, that he is God, the Messiah, their Savior. And they rejected him. Wherefore, because they sought it not by faith, but as it were by the works of the law. For they stumbled at that stumbling stone As it is written, behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone and rock of offense, and whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed. Of course, that rock is the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, listen, even today, salvation is open for the Jews. There are Jewish people being saved today. 
understanding the gospel, putting their faith in Jesus as their Messiah. Is God saving them? Yes, he's saving them. They as a nation rejected him, but salvation still open to the individual because God will have mercy on those that want mercy. But that doesn't mean God doesn't have a plan for the nations and God doesn't have a plan for the nation of Israel. One last verse, go with me to John chapter three. So God in his foreknowledge gave man a free will and God in his foreknowledge knows what man will do. And yes, God does work. He will work his plan. He has his plan and that's set. But he takes all of the details, all of the details, the choices of man, his will, and he says, okay, I'm bringing my plan about, okay? You know what that ought to make us do, folks? Number one, it ought to make us bow the knee. God, you are awesome. There's nobody like you. And it ought to make us praise him. Because even with the rebellious creature, mankind, God will still bring many sons to glory. It's a marvelous truth. John chapter 3 and verse 16. It says this. Jesus is speaking, by the way. For God so loved the world, it's everybody, that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. What is it you need to believe? Would you watch this illustration here this morning? Let me explain it to you this way. It made it clear to me. If we could pretend that my left hand represents you and me, here we are, and let this wallet represent our sin. We're all sinners. According to the Bible, we've all sinned. Was it God's will that we sinned? No. Did he allow it? Yes. God loves us. He hates our sin. To get to heaven, you have to be sinless, and none of us are. We're sinful. We're sinners. Heaven is a perfect place. No sin will dwell there. God says, you've sinned against me. Your sin has to be paid for. You broke the law. There's a penalty that has to be paid. And God says the wages of sin is death. If we pay for our own sin, we'll be lost forever in hell. God doesn't want that for us. Now the Jews thought, okay, well, the way we'll take care of our sin is by doing good works. We'll keep the commandments. We'll follow God's laws. But nowhere in the Bible does it say if you do that, okay, or if you try to do that, you're going to go to heaven. It says this, actually, for by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. What's the gift of God? Eternal life in heaven. You might say, how does that work? Let me show you how it works. God is a God of justice and holiness. He's fair. He says our sin has to be paid for. If we do it, eternity in hell. But he says this, I so love you, I don't want you to go there. I don't want you to go there, whether you're Jew or Gentile. Therefore, he himself took on flesh. It's the greatest story ever told. The Lord Jesus Christ, God himself, came to this world, the Christ, the anointed one, the Messiah, the Savior. And he went to the cross. And when he went to the cross, he took all of our sin upon himself. He made that complete payment for sin, leaving us nothing to pay for, nothing left. And he rose from the grave. And he says this, if you will believe in me, put your faith in me that I made that payment for your sin, I will give you that moment, everlasting life as a gift. It says, I'll never lose you. I'll never cast you out. It's a gift. It's everlasting. Jesus said it right. For God so loved the world 
that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Now, friend, if you're going to trust in your own good works and your own merit and your faithfulness, you think, well, I can't just believe it's a gift. I have to do my part too in works. Then what you're saying is this, then you are going to take the burden for this. You're saying you're going to pay the price. Well, the only way you can do that is by spending forever separated from God. How much better to accept what Christ has done. And when you trust him, your sins are taken away. You have forgiveness. He gives you everlasting life. Oh, the payment was made 2,000 years ago, but it's only good on your behalf when you trust in him as your savior. So I urge you to trust in Christ today, whether you're a Jew, whether you're a Gentile, God is offering to you everlasting life as a gift. And when you trust Christ as your savior, you become part of what the Bible calls the church or the body of Christ. It's not a denomination. It's spiritual, okay? And I urge you to trust in Christ. Well, friends, that concludes this edition of Voice of Assurance. Thanks so much for listening. And would you share this ministry with a friend? To contact us or learn more about our ministry, please visit www.northlandchurch.com Your prayers and support for this ministry are greatly appreciated. Thank you so much and God bless you.